0: Welcome, welcome to the Anthropocene raccoon, coyote, house mouse, peregrine, squirrel, red fox, Rattus norvegicus, all you creatures who can live with us, being sufficiently plastic to adapt and thrive upon our handouts, urban crap, suburban rubbish dumps and garbage cans. Welcome Canada Goose, taking your stand all five million of you on our parks and golf courses, you avian oligarchs hissing at our dogs, dropping gray-green turds on swaths of grass. You're what we've deserved after we've homogenized the landscape planet-wide. Our broad foot eradicates the little islands of ecology, the disappearing rare, the melody of the threatened, red-eyed vireos, piping plovers, grasshopper sparrows, all the small, sweet, uncompetitive. Immured in cities, we forget we live on a planet that is more inventive than ourselves. Her secrets are undreamt of, even now, her hidden leaves and worms, her microbes, her amphibians. And yet we churn her soils, her ocean depths, her streams, like the thwacking paddles of a dough machine. Worldwide, our cities rise as uniform as mass-produced white bread. We transform the richly variegated niches into starved soil for weedy species like ourselves, moan, shorn vegetation. Chronically impoverished, yet unchastened, we think the gadgetry we've gained redeems our losses. Why should we miss one small green leaf-shaped frog gone from a distant tropic half a world away? We are too myopic to see this slender loss might mean a space is closed, a possibility effaced.
1: Yes,
2: welcome to the Anthropocene listeners. And welcome to this two-part epochal edition of Terra Informa. I'm Amanda and
3: I'm Dylan. In this first episode of Welcome to the Anthropocene, we'll be investigating the scientific, political, and ethical implications of naming this epoch the Anthropocene. We began with Edmonton poet Alice Major reading an excerpt from her poem entitled Welcome to the Anthropocene.
2: From scientists who have proposed the Anthropocene idea, as well as thinkers who critique the idea by proposing other names and origin stories to help us better understand these times. But first...
3: The topic of the new geological epoch is complex and overwhelming, so we're going to begin with gratitude and empathy to help ground us before we get too deep.
2: We are grateful for diversity, for the people, waters, and fish, the plants, foods, and medicines, the animals and trees, birds and winds and bugs, the thunderers and the sun, the moon, the stars, and the earth.
3: This two-part documentary series was produced on Treaty 6, the territory of the Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples who live and gather and persist here. And we are grateful for the privilege of being settlers on their territory. First, we're going to introduce you to some of the scientists behind the name for the new geological epoch, the Anthropocene.
4: We've entered a whole new geological epoch, the Anthropocene.
2: This is Johann Rockström, arguably one of the most influential Anthropocene scientists right now.
4: There have been modern humans on Earth for roughly 80,000 years. So we've had the same intellectual and physical capacity to develop civilizations as we know them today. During this period was, I can tell you, a jumpy ride indeed. You know, we were hunters and gatherers. We were a few million people. We were jumping between plus minus 10 degrees Celsius in a decade. We had a very rough time until we exit the last ice age and enter this extraordinary, in Pope Francis' words, miraculously stable, interglacial, geological epoch we all learned in school to call the Holocene. It is so stable, in fact, that the maximum temperature variability on Earth is plus minus one degree Celsius. The Holocene, and we do our most important invention of all, we go from hunters and gatherers to become farmers, and off we go in the civilizational journey as we know it. And this is, we know today, the most dramatic and simple message science has to humanity. The Holocene is the only state of planet Earth, the only equilibrium state we know that can support our modern world. But dear friends, we're moving out of the Holocene. We have a journey which is taking us to a new geological epoch. And this journey starts in 1750 with the Industrial Revolution. It starts with James Watt inventing the coal-fired steam engine in the United Kingdom. It is the takeoff point of the Industrial Revolution. It's a point that occurs with industrialization, railway, infrastructure, and we rapidly colonize the entire planet but we're still just having very incremental impacts on the earth system. We come to 1900 here and the Haber-Bosch process is invented allowing ourselves to produce modern food that can actually feed a much larger population. But we're still at this linear phase until we come to the 1955 branch point and that is dear friends when science today stipulates that this is when we enter the moment of the great acceleration. We're 3 billion people 10 years after the Second World War, and off we go in an exponential rise of our pressures on the Earth system. We start overusing biodiversity, deforestating, emptying oceans to 60% today. We have emission of greenhouse gases that just concentrates more and more. We see Arctic ice sea loss. The warnings come already in 1962 with Rachel Carson's famous Silent Spring, warning us that if we continue in this way, we cannot exclude negative impacts for humanity. The Club of Rome comes 72, warning that by 2020, 2030, we could go in the wrong direction. The warnings came early, but we continue on the exponential journey. And it is in 1990 that we start seeing the first evidence of invoices being sent back. So it seems like our unsustainable journey worked up until the late 1980s. But the collapse of codfishes out of Newfoundland, we crossed 350 ppm in carbon dioxide concentrations. We see accelerated ice melt. We see the first signs of large scale acidification and bleaching events in coral reefs. So it is in the last two, three decades when we've reached the saturation point. And today we have overwhelming evidence that these myriad of hockey sticks results in us being able scientifically to welcome humanity to the Anthropocene.
3: Dear friends, yes, it's bad. And the Anthropocene scientists are brilliant scientists we should listen to and learn from. But it's important to remember that their story of the Anthropocene is only one way to understand these times.
2: Naming and dating this epoch is not just a scientific decision. It's also very political. The date and name we choose have implications for how we understand the trouble and how we take responsibility individually and as
4: a society. According to Rockstrom... And we rapidly colonize the entire planet.
3: But from the vantage point of indigenous peoples, things look very different, more like a Euro scene or white supremacy scene or simply
1: colonization. Obviously, indigenous people think it's 1492. Mm-hmm. You know, I think. I mean, if, if we were to think about the term, it would be settler colonial. It's, it's aligned with settler colonialism. Our way of life is already was already... Um, almost completely ended, right? And indigenous people are post-apocalyptic. So it makes more sense for us to see this as a, yet another kind of moment of crisis and a long series of moments of crisis.
3: You just heard Native Studies professor and sisseton
1: Wapatano yate citizen Kim TallBear. Using it, our critique is of settler colonialism and that severing of, relations between human, you know, severing of our relationship forms, whether those are relations between humans, you see that with the kidnapping of our children, the incarceration of them in residential schools, the forced sterilization of indigenous women, the um, suppression of our forms of marriage and the imposition of other forms of marriage and the suppression of uh, extended family and and kin groups and the imposition of nuclear family, and this is how this is tied to private property, which then leads us to see that it's not only a disruption of relations between humans, but with the quote-unquote natural world. So for us, that's that's the crux of what's going on.
2: Science has pretended to maintain objectivity and authority over this epoch, but both names and dates might suggest who or what is responsible for the trouble of this epoch.
3: Understanding the Anthropocene simply as an epoch of humans disguises the violence of colonization, of invading armies and nation-states, stealing land and polluting water, extracting wealth from local places and people in the past and present. And yes, the culprits are all Anthropos, but are all Anthropos equal culprits? Here's philosopher Nathan Kowalski.
5: The human being is what the anthropos means in Greek the idea then if we're talking about the human being as the generic it sounds like maybe what we mean is the human species is responsible in some really great almost biological sense for what eventually turned into the Anthropocene. You know the human being species evolved roughly 200,000 years ago and there wasn't an Anthropocene back then but Maybe the idea is because they were just human, they just developed over time and evolved and blah, 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 and then turned into what we are now today. And so that what we see with the Anthropocene is a result of what we would otherwise call human nature. Um, And this is something I fundamentally find problematic.
2: Right. So humans haven't always been this way, and we don't need to be. Back to Kim TallBear.
1: There's um, a Koyankawi woman I know from Northern California who, she's a writer, but she also, she makes acorn mush. Um, Her name's Linda Knoll, and she was telling us a story one time uh, when I was hanging out with her about, uh, so acorn trees, they drop these acorns. And for Pomo people and other people in Northern California, uh, acorns, well, white people call them starvation food, but Pomo people tend to call them medicine. They make a mush out of it. You've got to leach whatever it is, out of the acorns so they're not poisonous. So there's mm-hmm. a way in which you have to leech, leech, leach. And, um, and then eventually you, you get the thing that could be poisonous out enough to where what remains is, a, is kind of medicinal. And um, so they were talking about gathering acorns, but you don't gather too much because you want to leave things there for deer and woodpecker. And so the oak tree, the woodpecker, the deer, and the humans are all kind of in this relationship together, tending the tree and, and not taking too much. Um, and so she was, Linda Noll was talking about the way in which that landscape was tended and those, Mm -hmm. those, the trees and plants and animals were in a sense tended or interacted with in non-exploitative, not too extractive ways in order that there was enough to go around, right? And that those beings kind of existed in, in a productive, uh, kind of tension and sharing economy with one another.
2: Both Dr. Kowalski and Dr. TallBear suggest that it's not in human nature to destabilize the Earth's climate, acidify the oceans, or devastate life.
1: They think they, I don't know, do they universalize or they they come to the people who would have already been considered human for the last 500 years when a bunch of other people weren't? They implicitly put white Western males into the position of representing universal man. They still do that. Does the human at the end of the line, is that ever a black woman or a native child? No, it's always a white guy. They're not thinking about the apocalypse that many peoples have already faced.
5: There is a very, very unequal set of responsibilities that has led to the Anthropocene, and that term does not convey the unequalness of the responsibilities.
2: Okay, we get it. Geologists think in deep time over millions of years, so it's not really outrageous that these earth system scientists and geologists came up with this term. They think in terms of species over evolutionary time.
3: However, many other scholars in gender studies, sociology, anthropology, literature, philosophy, native studies, and more, have spent their lives deconstructing the idea of universal man looking at the differences between human societies, how we live, our relationships with science, nature, our fellow human beings, and the way we create and organize our economies.
2: Many scholars have argued that the problem is not a particular group of people or the human species, but a complex web of relationships defined by the organization of all life in the service of the accumulation and maximization of profit. They place responsibility for the precarity of this age by calling it the capitalocene. This about
5: shopping. the mall, to the mall, going to, the mall going to
3: the mall. Here is but a brief excerpt from a talk given by UBC human ecology professor Bill Rees on a key problem with capitalism, the unsustainable necessity of infinite economic
5: growth. That the economic models are so, so completely removed in their conceptual framing from the way the biophysical world operates that there's simply no way you can mesh these together sensibly. So we wind up with an economy uh, which is growth oriented, which believes that growth is infinite as long as it's propelled by continuous uh, so called uh, technological advances of one kind or another, particularly. Efficiency, or what economists refer to as factor productivity. So if you think that the economy can grow indefinitely because we're getting more efficiently, more efficient, rather, uh, then you match that to a non-growing system, which the economy has to feed upon, you've got the basis for a real problem.
3: I personally like the capital scene because it does not blame particular humans but the unequal, out-of-control, life-eating system we are all, unequally, equally, in.
2: The Global Wealth Data Book reported that in 2014, 1% of the richest humans monopolized 48% of global wealth. This leaves the poor half of humanity with 1% of that global wealth.
3: It is the poor who bear the vast majority of ecological and social devastation, while the wealthy scientists of the rich European, American, Australian, and Canadian countries declare that this is the epoch of humans.
2: Why is the problem at the core of this epoch about more than the maximization of profit? Well, capitalism is an economic system imposed by European imperialism on indigenous economies.
1: Yeah, we talked on, we recorded media indigenous this morning, and one of our stories was about the wildfires in California, and we were talking a uh, Rick Harp, our host at one point said, well, maybe we need to have reconciliation with fire. And then we're like, oh yeah, what would that look like? Not just apologies to fire for having suppressed its agency and its ability to do its rejuvenation and work that it does in the landscape, right? Because fire is a, is a being accorded agency in an indigenous worldviews, right? It's not just this inanimate thing to be curtailed and controlled by humans. It's, it's a life force in and of itself. So if you're going to reconcile with fire, what does that mean? It means giving something back to fire. It means working with fire instead of just oppressing it. And, you know, Because that that's, not, that's not working. That's not good for the land. It's not, it's not good for us either. And it's not good for settlers. Ultimately, it would have been much better if newcomers came over here and figured out how to work with the governance systems that were here. That would have been much better, but they didn't do that. So you know, how do you undo some of that now?
2: This epoch is about far more than capitalism.
1: Fires
3: in California and B.C. aren't just being exacerbated by climate change, but by a history of colonial misunderstanding of fires' role in the landscape and hundreds of years of fire suppression to preserve an ideal wilderness. The belief that wilderness was separate from humans is aligned with the inability to acknowledge that indigenous peoples have been managing the land with fire for thousands of years.
2: Another alternative term proposed is the thanatocene. Thanatos is the Greek god of death. And the point of the thanatocene is that conflict, war, and power define this era of ecological loss and destabilization. Though
3: it is not the only country capable of bombing and killing, proponents of the thanatocene focus their critique on the United States military, pointing out the Pentagon's annual price tag of $686 billion in 2019, the hundreds of bases on every continent on the planet, and the way that these forces often aid both the extractive interests of local tyrants and wealthy multinational corporations.
2: Adding to the grisly horror of cluster bombs, depleted uranium, and perpetual war is the fact that the Pentagon is the most polluting institution on Earth. The concept of the Thanatos scene highlights how the military, along with the huge, unjust, and unnecessary injury and death for all the people on which war is waged, thus that war is always also war on forests, animals, and entire ecosystems.
3: It shouldn't be ignored that military tactics have been integral to imperialism and the expansion of colonial empire.
2: The military enables wealthy countries to use that military power to secure economic resources undermining the physical lands on which local people depend
3: reminding us that the United States military has a long history of this behavior Kim Tallbear
1: We have already suffered these severe environmental tragedies you know when all the when the bison were just I've been using genocide as a verb lately. When the bison were genocided, because <laughs> they were subject to genocide like Native people were, mm-hmm. you know. So we've already seen these uh, these apocalyptic moments. You see those old pictures of these piles of bison bones. This isn't the animals were genocided, and that meant that the people couldn't their people couldn't survive in terms of the the way of life that they had, and that's why that they killed them because they wanted to eliminate the way of life of Indigenous people that that was co-constituted with that animal. And what about
3: the animals, the plants, the insects, the bison, and native prairie grassland, the coral reefs, and the old-growth cedar? Should naming this epoch even be about placing responsibility? Or should it center those being
2: lost? This epoch demands thinking about the extraordinary interconnectedness of humans with the earth and all her other species' waterways, oceans, and air.
3: Other epochs are named in ways that characterize the geological strata associated with that time. The Pleistocene epoch, which ended about 12,000 years ago, is named to reflect that there was an explosion of new life that can be found in fossil records.
2: This is why geologist Jill Schneiderman has proposed the Elachistocene. The prefix Elachistos means the least, and thus the Elachistocene is the antithesis of Pleistocene, Literally, the time of least new life. Here's Will Steffen, another vocal proponent for the acceptance of the Anthropocene, explaining why we are entering a new epoch.
5: Interestingly, climate change isn't the strongest argument. The strongest argument is biodiversity. Why is that so? Many of the Earth's epochs are defined by sharp changes in the fossil record. Something happened to the biology of the planet. We're seeing it now.
2: I really like the Elachistocene because it follows a geologic naming scheme and is easy for people to understand once they learn about the sixth extinction.
3: The Thanatocene, Elachistocene, settler colonialism, the Capitalocene, all are part of the current era. But does naming matter that much? In pulling together this podcast, we've realized that this discussion is not about selecting the best name, but rather about using these names together to understand the multi-layered political, economic, and historically rooted structures that we believe are most responsible for the horrifying direction we are all headed.
2: Much of our frustration with Anthropocene scientists arises from attending university together and learning from brilliant professors of ecological science, often white guys who simply accept humans as the root problem.
3: We believe that isn't good enough, that it does not adequately grasp the root causes of habitat loss, climate change, or species extinction. Additionally, it does not offer much support or solidarity to those people who have both resisted against and been the primary casualties of the brutal technologies of imperialism and capitalism that continue to inequitably undermine all life. Perhaps in grasping the tip of the tail of this crisis, we might begin to imagine the epic scale of civilizational transformation we all need.
5: We need something that is not this system, and we know that now because we, before that we were trying to work within it, and now we realize that that system itself is the problem, and so there can be a decent way to get out of that system, or there can be an undecent way of doing it, but we have to do something like this, and maybe, because otherwise there literally is no hope. Mm-hmm. We need drastic action.
3: In his book, Climate, A New Story, Charles Eisenstein provide policy ideas to match the scale of devastation and strive for a world full of life rather than the world we're speeding towards. Here's just a few of them.
2: Promote land regeneration, connecting young and new farmers to farms and educating them on regenerative practices.
3: Put a global moratorium on resource extraction and development in any remaining intact ecosystems.
2: Declare the rainforests to be international protected treasures. Globally agree to purchase the external debt in Venezuela, Ecuador, Indonesia, and other countries that hold Amazon and Congo rainforests.
3: Promote the expansion of wildlife reserves with the full participation, consent, and cooperation of the indigenous peoples whose territories they're in. Change zoning regulations to allow for higher density development and backyard chickens and promote this practice in urban planning.
2: Relocalize the food system by nullifying free trade treaties and replacing them with fair trade treaties that protect local economic sovereignty.
3: Tax pollution to force corporations to internalize the costs of manufactured goods so that they have incentive to create durable, repairable products with recoverable materials.
2: In colonial countries like Canada, implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People to allow for rightful Indigenous sovereignty over land, requiring free, prior, and informed consent for any development on their territories.
3: Tax inequality and implement a universal basic income.
2: Implementing these policies may seem infinitely distant, but without those who can dream of these potential solutions, none of them can ever actually exist. Try it. Imagine if the American military were shrunk to a tenth of its size, rerouting approximately 590 billion extra dollars, which could then be used to repair ecosystems locally and globally to stimulate a massive regenerative transition, offer material reparations to those Native American and Black American people who have suffered the lingering traumas of racism, slavery, and genocide of stolen land and stolen labor.
3: Imagine if hoarding billions were made illegal, and stagnant excess wealth were used to fund the massive changes required for sustainable life-giving infrastructure, and for an economic playing field where everyone can afford the health care and housing necessary to weather the coming fires, floods, famines, and pandemics.
2: Now, we began with gratitude, and we will end with humility. This is all an immense simplification of global environmental history, coming specifically from where we are situated, in Canada, on Turtle Island. But it is a brief taste of the thought generated on the Anthropocene. We haven't even touched on the Homo the Plantationocene, or the Thulucene.
3: We have taken the liberty of being opinionated, so thank you for bearing with us. Now, we need to ask, After all of that, how are you feeling? Want a cup of comforting tea?
2: Us too. We realize that all our dreaming of responses to this epoch are proposals for state actors. For those with access to power, you might be wondering, how best can we personally prepare ourselves for the emotional burden of contemplating the Anthropocene? I feel like a mix of emotions. society is very scared of emotions, they do not like to talk about emotions. It might
5: be true that one of the reasons why we have difficulty dealing or responding to the Anthropocene is because we talk about it in terms of the intellect, but we don't talk about it in terms of expression of emotion about it.
2: In part two of our documentary, Welcome to the Anthropocene, we consider emotions in this apocalypse asking our guests how they feel about this epoch, diving deep into the murky waters of fear and hope, grief and guilt, gratitude and courage.
3: But for now, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a volunteer-run production of CGSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory.
2: You have heard the voices of professors Kim TallBear Bill Reese and Nathan Kowalski, poet Alice Major, and Anthropocene scientists Johan Rockstrom and Will Steffen. We have been your hosts, Amanda
3: and Dylan. Big thanks this week to Superstar Charlotte, who edited down this series from a chunky two hours to two sleek half-hour episodes.
2: Visit us at terrainforma.ca and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa. Take care of each other, fellow Anthropopes.